You're listening to the Entmoot Podcast, the podcast about the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and how they intersect with political philosophy. This is episode three, Mob Rule in Middle-Earth, in which co-hosts Kenny and Sam discuss the principle of democracy as presented in Tolkien's writing. Welcome, listeners, to episode three of the Entmoot Podcast. Uh, I am Kenny Tallarico, and I'm joined here by my great friend, Sam Lieberman. Sam, what's going on? Uh, Not a ton. Just got back from a trip, feeling sort of tired, but very excited to talk about J.R. Tolkien and democracy. As always. So, uh, as Sam said, and as I also said in the introduction to the episode, today's episode, we're going to be talking about Tolkien's relationship to democracy, as well as the presence of uh, formal democratic institutions, or more so the lack thereof, in uh, Middle-earth. So, before we start in earnest, we have a couple quotes that we want to read to sort of set the stage about Tolkien's political philosophy and his thoughts toward democracy. Uh, Sam, take it away. Yeah, so I'm going to be quoting the great Humphrey Carpenter from his biography of Tolkien, which we constantly cite and everyone who listens to this should read. Um, He writes, His view of the world in which each man belonged or ought to belong to a specific estate, whether high or low, meant that in one sense he was an old-fashioned conservative. But in another sense, it made him highly sympathetic to his fellow men, for it is those who are unsure of their status in the world who feel they have to prove themselves, and if necessary, put down other men to do so, who are the truly ruthless. Tolkien was in modern jargon right-wing in that he honored his monarch and his country and did not believe in the rule of the people. But he opposed democracy simply because he believed that in the end, his fellow men would not benefit from it. So next, I'm going to read a letter that uh, Tolkien wrote to his son, Christopher. It is listed as letter 94 in the letters of uh, J.R. Tolkien, edited by Humphrey Carpenter. And uh, at the beginning of this, he mentions Mr. Eden. He is alluding to uh, the, at the time, Foreign Secretary of Britain, Anthony Eden, who would later be Prime Minister of Britain. And the letter is as follows. Mr. Eden in the house the other day expressed pain at the occurrences in Greece, quote, the home of democracy, quote. Is he ignorant or insincere? Demokratia was not in Greek a word of approval, but was nearly equivalent to, quote, mob rule, quote. And he neglected to note that Greek philosophers, and far more as Greece the home of philosophy, did not approve of it. And the great Greek states, especially Athens at the time of its high art and power, were rather dictatorships, if they were not military monarchies like Sparta. And modern Greece has as little connection with ancient Hellas as we have with Britain before Julius Agricola. And I also want to want to quickly mention after finishing that up that uh, this is not necessarily like the uh, standard philosoph- uh, historical view on uh, democracy in ancient Greece. As an aside, yeah. Do you well, talk a little bit more about that because I think to where Tolkien is uh, misinterpreting or, or, or misunderstanding Greek history actually might have some might give us some insight into his beliefs. So, so it's actually, I, I actually just uh, recently read uh, Gary Will's uh, book about Lincoln at Gettysburg, where he talks a lot about, uh, obviously I'm not an expert in this stuff, but he talks a lot about like Greek democracy and the philosophy of democracy in Greece and how that influenced Lincoln. So then I was looking it up and there's a pretty long debate that goes back super far 
about whether or not like the philosophers of ancient Greece thought that democracy as they defined it was a good thing. Um, certainly the founding fathers of the United States thought that it was not that great in Athens and they probably argued that the Athenian philosophers would have argued against it uh, and they favored Roman republicanism. Uh, later, sort of Civil War era thinkers like Lincoln or Edward Everett or Emerson or Thoreau uh, were under the view that, you know, not only was Athenian democracy good, but also that at the time Athenian philosophers understood it as good. The answer, you know, I honestly am really not an expert on this, but I believe from like school is somewhere in between. There were certainly philosophers in, you know, Athens who were supportive of the democratic regime, I guess you could say. Uh, and those who were not. But what Tolkien is saying right here uh, certainly is a view that exists, but this is not like the standard interpretation of things. So I think that that, that sort of historical misunderstanding, whether intentional or not, I, I'm inclined to think that it's probably uh, not intentional and that it's just genuinely his his reading of it, I think goes a long way to, to show his own attitude toward... Uh, democracy in general and what its inevitable end is, which he would say is uh, sort of mob rule that doesn't do anybody any good. So I have I have one more uh, letter to read. This is this one's a bit longer. This is uh, another one to his son, Christopher. Uh, it's letter 81. And it's sort of generally on what he sees as the definition of freedom. Uh, but like that last one, it was written during the Second World War. And so there's some incredible discussion of uh, the Nazis and, and his views uh, on, uh, on sort of World War II era politics um, that I, I feel like we would be remiss not to include. Uh, I think another thing that's really interesting is towards the, towards the, the second half of this passage I'm going to read, he starts talking about the tendency of uh, certain individuals and organizations within Britain toward the end of the Second World War, this is like 1944, I believe, uh, to call for things like the extermination of, of Germans and uh, sort of this this trend of, of dehumanizing uh, the sort of average people on the other side of a, of a, of a conflict or a war, uh, not just the, you know, the politicians and the people in charge, but just regular Germans. And I think that that's sort of an enduring, uh, enduring theme for, I mean, really for all of human history, but to, uh, to see, you know, the other side of a conflict, regular people, civilians as being, you know, less than or being subhuman. Uh, and I think he has some really good, good thoughts on that. So at the beginning here, he's talking about uh, his friend who he was going on a walk with. Uh, and so that's the context that it starts. Quote, He was discussing the difficulties of discovering what common factors, if any, existed in the notions associated with freedom as used at present. I don't believe there are any, for the word has been so abused by propaganda that it has ceased to have any value for reason and become a mere emotional dose for generating heat. At most, it would seem to imply that those who domineer over you should speak, natively, the same language, which in the last resort is all that the confused ideas of race or nation boil down to, or class for that matter, in England. The Western war news, of course, occupies a good deal of our minds, but you know as much about it as we do. Ancient times, in spite of the rather premature shouting. The armored fellows are right in the thick of it, and I gather, think there's going to be a good deal more of the thick yet. 
I cannot understand the line taken by BBC, and papers and so, I suppose, emanating from the Ministry of Information, that the German troops are a motley collection of sutlers and broken men, while yet recording the bitterest defense against the finest and best-equipped armies, as indeed they are, that have ever taken the field. The English pride themselves, or used to, on sportsmanship, which included, quote, giving the devil his due. Not that attendance at a league football match was not enough to dispel the notion that sportsmanship was possessed by any very large number of the inhabitants of this island. But it is distressing to see the press groveling in the gutter as low as Goebbels in his prime, shrieking that any German commander who holds out in a desperate situation, when, too, the military needs of his side clearly benefit, is a drunkard and a besotted fanatic. I can't see much distinction between our popular tone and the celebrated, quote, military idiots, unquote. We knew Hitler was a vulgar and ignorant little cad in addition to any other defects or the source of them, but there seem to be many vulgar and ignorant little cads who don't speak German and who given the same chance, would show most of the other Hitlerian characteristics. There was a solemn article in the local paper seriously advocating systematic exterminating of the entire German nation as the only proper course after military victory, because, if you please, they are rattlesnakes and don't know the difference between good and evil. What of the writer? The Germans have just as much right to declare the Poles and Jews exterminable vermin, subhuman, as we have to select the Germans. In other words, no right, whatever they have done. Of course, there is still a difference here. The article was answered and the answer printed. The vulgar and ignorant cad is not yet a boss with power, but he is a very great deal nearer to becoming one in this green and pleasant isle than he was. You can't fight the enemy with his own ring without turning into an enemy, but unfortunately, Gandalf's wisdom seems long ago to have passed with him into the true West. So I thought that that was a great sort of summary of uh, of some of Tolkien's views on all of this stuff. Although uh, you know, a bit a bit long winded. Although of course he's a he's an a, an excellent writer. So I, I you know I, yes. I felt I felt compelled the the whole time. But I think, even even in his letters, even in yes, his personal yes, letters, right? Which I, I will say, I think that you know, letter writing like this is very much an art that has uh, that has gone the way of the. Uh, you know, the uh, sending letters in the mail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, most definitely. Even like, man, I mean, you know, the, the, the closest thing we have today is, is just putting out a banger on Twitter. And even that's not quite the same. <laughs> okay, but a couple things I just wanted to wanted to mention. Um, I think that it it's a good insight into the type of mind that we're dealing with, that he is really not at all interested in the sort of the normal sort of patriotism and nationalism that that comes out of uh, a war effort i mean he's clearly i mean he's certainly in some ways interested in british nationalism because he, he loves britain i mean it, well no he doesn't love britain he loves england okay that's and very true yeah he 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 makes that point you know many times through his letters i would also say that i mean in other letters to christopher he explicitly says like, oh, I mean, I hope our side wins because we are less bad. But he never really says, oh, we're the good guys. He's always like, oh, I mean, we're, we're less object evil. But that's why he says it's like trying to defeat them with the ring. Yeah, you know, exactly. Not- exactly. And I, and I mean, you also get some of that later in his horror at the use of the, of the atomic bomb. Yes. Uh, yes. It, that's the same thing because that is, that is like the closest thing you can get to uh you know using the ring to defeat to defeat an enemy it's it's you know corrupting yourself so badly that you know was winning even worth it 
And as long as it exists, there's always the chance that everything will completely disintegrate. Exactly, exactly. And of course, he always he always would say specifically, the ring is not supposed to be the atomic bomb, especially because I mean that's obviously true because he conceived of Lord of the Rings before uh, before the Manhattan Project. But nonetheless, uh, the ring represents certain immutable tendencies in uh, human nature that the atomic bomb is sort of the ultimate culmination of, uh, which. An expression of, in a way, that nothing beforehand in human history represented. Because you didn't have any single thing that could destroy so much. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that here, Tolkien is, he's he's emphasizing what he views as the critical role of dissent. Uh, in, in, the Germ- in, in Germany, you wouldn't be able to publish a dissenting view about how, no, we shouldn't be exterminating these groups of people. Uh, because of the sort of intense centralized control. And so I think he's saying basically, despite the egregious view that that particular person expressed, it could be combated with an opposing view. Although, of course, the sort of nationalistic frenzy inspired by war is sort of inflating that first person's uh, influence in that he has the platform to, to publish in the paper. So I think there you get yet another sort of expression of Tolkien's uh, idea that war is not only bad for the obvious reasons war is bad when it comes to human suffering, but it's also bad in that it sort of sends people into these nationalistic frenzies that often lead to uh, more suffering as a matter of uh, revenge or sort of blowback. Yeah, and and I guess before we we jump into a full discussion of this stuff and sort of cite more things from the Legendarium, Tolkien sort of puts his own views really succinctly in letter 246 in the Collected Letters edited by Carpenter when he says, quote, I am not a Democrat only because humility and equality are spiritual principles corrupted by the attempt to mechanize and formalize them. And so I guess the central point here is that Tolkien doesn't reject the idea of popular participation in government necessarily, but, quote, modern institutionalized democracy, which is how uh, Dominic Nardi, who we'll be citing very shortly, puts it in a paper of his from 2014. Yes, that's exactly right. And so I think now that we've sort of gotten some of those, you know, primary sources, uh, quotes from, from Tolkien out of the way to sort of set the scene, I think we can talk now about... Uh, Dominic Nardi's view uh, that in the paper Sam just mentioned, which is, uh, as always, linked in the show notes, and it's called Political Institutions in J.R.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth. Uh, And so he gets into a bit of what he calls the subject-ruler dichotomy, which this is sort of uh, some political theory 101, but I think it's 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 worth stating because I would like to sort of drill down on exactly what we mean by democracy and uh, how that fits into other conceptions of the way that we can organize our societies. Basically, how Nardi defines this is that the ruler commands the subjects through laws, speeches, bureaucracy, and propaganda, and then subjects directly or indirectly inform the rulers of their wishes, which the ruler often, but not always, and some would argue rarely, will follow so that the subject does not become so dissatisfied so as to attempt Regime change. I would also add that I think even, you know, that brief sort of summary that Nardi provides is is itself a bit of an oversimplification because there's such a wide, and we'll get into this later, but there's such a, you know, a wide gap between, let's say, a, I don't know, tribal chieftain 
in uh, pagan Scandinavia in 400 and modern, you know, as Tolkien would put it, mechanized bureaucracy and everything in between. But that's just sort of the simple version of that. No matter what, at some level, a, you know, at least in theory, a ruler is accountable somehow because in uh, in a in a democratic system they're accountable formally through elections or what have you referenda and then you know as you move into a more and more authoritarian system they're accountable because of, at a certain point uh enough people will have had it and will attempt regime change of course that's not which is why always what happens but <laughs> I, I would say which is why the uh the, the Kim dynasty fell out of power in North Korea decades ago. Precisely. Anyway, uh, continue. The, the, the basic idea is that if you have a ruler who doesn't take much interest in um, the desires or whims of their subjects, uh, this brings about totalitarianism or dictatorship. And once you have totalitarianism or dictatorship, the system will collapse in on itself because it's harder for the regime to gather correct information about their subjects' political desires because of fear of retribution for contracting government policy. Obviously, uh, like, you know, this is a huge oversimplification. And I would also argue that modern, you know, surveillance capitalism or, you know, sur surveillance technology complicates all of these things. And then sort of the, the dialectical opposite to this or, or complement to this, you could really say, is the idea that direct democracy or let's say an anarchist system when rulers rely solely on the whims of their subjects with no judgment of their own, you have uh, mob rule uh, is, is sort of the, the flip side of the idea. But, um, and, and I would say this basic framework undergirds a lot of what we're going to be talking about, but it also has a lot of faults of its own. For sure. It also, in, in large part, undergirds like the last 300 years of uh, most of the world's history. <laughs> yeah, and and the way, and and I would say going off of that, and again, bringing up Wills, just because I, I just read his book, so, which Kenny actually bought for me. One thing that I think is really interesting is even though you have this general framework, the sort of, again, Civil War era American leaders move so much further on the democratic spectrum uh, then the founders really wanted to, generally with like exceptions like pain, but um, or thought was possible. So where mob rule ends and real democracy begins is always subjective within that framework, based on like you know cultural assumptions, political assumptions, material realities. But the general, as you said, the general framework stays pretty stable in the last three hundred years of you know. I was about to say the West, but you're right. Probably the entire world. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I think really the, the, the framework we're going to be using the most is just the idea of what is certainly an oversimplified spectrum, but nonetheless a helpful one of sort of democracy or formal mechanisms that allow uh, in general, like the, the masses, I guess, to exert their uh, opinion and will directly in the political process versus authoritarian systems in which an individual or group of individuals uh, maintain power and there are not formal mechanisms for regular people to exert their, their will. Uh, and it's very much a spectrum. Uh, for example, the early United States is somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. There is sort of some democracy, um, 
but there are a lot of checks on that democracy. It's it's probably closer to the authoritarian side of that spectrum than the democratic one. And some people would say the same about the modern United States. <laughs> yes, I, I would. I mean, for what it's worth, I'd be inclined to say that the modern United States is probably closer to the democratic side of that spectrum. All sides are all things being equal. But uh, it's certainly much closer to the authoritarian side than like it should be in most European countries are, for example. Yes. Okay, so, but using that democratic authoritarian spectrum framework, uh, we are going to spend basically the rest of this episode doing a survey of the lands of Middle-earth, specifically of uh, during, the, during the, the end of the Third Age, during the events of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, and sort of classifying them on um, that spectrum. And we're going to start uh, on the most authoritarian side and move... Uh, and move toward the democratic side. And this is all taken, uh, uh, the arguments we're going to make are in large part our own, but uh, the sort of general idea of this and also the placement of each, which we agree with, is all taken from that that Nardi article that that we're going to link in the show notes. Sam, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, totally. Obviously, Mordor is a totalitarian dictatorship. Um we're not going to really get into this in this episode, but eventually we'll do a Foucault and, and Tolkien episode. But, like, man, uh, Sauron just being a giant eye, which could constantly see everything, but isn't directly omnipotent, uh, peak Panopticon vibes. Um, it has a complex bureaucracy. Uh, it's racially segregated, and the races are explicitly tied to class. Um you have no informal interaction between members of different classes or race. Everything is entirely formalized. It is like the definition of a surveillance state. Um, effectively, it's a giant prison. The borders are a mountain range, which you can only get into through a giant guarded gate or a pass guarded by an evil spider. Um you have uh, courtiers, for instance, the mouth of Sauron. You have bureaucratic agents, the ring wraiths. That one, a bit of a stretch, but it, it fits for, for a medieval view, you could say. Um, you have tributary states. The Atlas of Middle-earth goes into that a little bit more. Um, and even foot soldiers are regimented into the elite with trolls versus common orcs. Um, the one glimpse we see into the thoughts of the common foot soldiers is the conversation between Shagrat and Gorbag about how even the biggest can make mistakes. They whisper this for fear of retribution because they've, quote, got eyes and ears everywhere. But again, like, it is the most completely mechanized, formalized, restrictive... Uh, state. Yeah, I think that, uh, I think Nardi's analysis here is, is, it's mostly correct, I think. Um, the one thing I, I wanted to mention is, of course, Sam, as we know, uh, Sauron is not literally a giant eye. That is a, a, a corruption from uh, Peter Jackson's <laughs> yes, movies. Yes, he is not literally a giant eye. It, it bears mentioning that in the books, at no point is he literally just a giant eye. Yeah, he's he's. it's always referred to as the eye of Sauron, which actually kind of uh, supports this point more because the eye of Sauron's not a giant eye. It is like Sauron's mechanism and the metaphor. Yes, it's, it's, it's complete Foucaultism. exactly Foucault whatever you want to say it's like yeah the the surveillance is like an eye it is everywhere it's all seeing I mean it isn't actually all seeing because it's not always looking at everything again it's 
It's pure Foucault. Yeah. I am going to go very quickly on uh, what is sort of next on this authoritarian spectrum. I think it's probably like, you know, Nardi sort of takes takes pains to say, well, it's a little less authoritarian, but I, I don't really think that that is really a worthwhile distinction. Uh, but it's Isengard. It's less efficiently authoritarian. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess he's worse at it. He's worse. He, he would like to do the same thing. But it's a, you know, uh, Gandalf says this, like, like in uh, The Two Towers, that, like, he he basically got corrupted into making, like, a sad... I forget the exact line, it's so good, but, like, into making, like, a sad imitation of Mordor. Yeah. The one thing I wanted to mention is uh, that Saruman is constantly abusing uh, Grima, which yes. is ostensibly, you know, his, his courtier, his servant. And I think that there are some... Some class implications there on on that Saruman, obviously. I, I don't, you know, and honestly, I don't even know. That's that's our own analysis, and I honestly, I'm not no, sure I, that. I I want to go with this a little further. Actually, I think not only are you right, I think you're extremely right. Saruman constantly makes references to Gandalf about like, oh, why would you go with these other like low class dipshits? Like me and you are like basically angels. Like we know so much more than them. The fact that you're, he basically calls Gandalf a class traitor. He's saying that you're siding with these underclasses who are generally not immortal beings. And even those that are immortal are not as powerful as us. You should go with me because I am like a member of like your social strata, basically. Yeah, that that's so true. And you also made the point way better than I was going to. Uh, I wasn't going to bring in the, the Gandalf thing, but I think that that, that really sells it. The the hesitancy that I was having actually might uh, be a product of some of Tolkien's own worldview, because this, you know, this idea of class traitorship, I think, is predicated on, in at least in the real world, is predicated on the idea that members of each class are equally human. But in this case, Gandalf and Saruman are actually, in a certain sense, greater beings than yes. the others. Yeah, yeah. But I think Tolkien, Tolkien would also say that that does not mean... I mean, he wouldn't just. We know he would say this. That does not mean that they are necessarily more likely to act in interest of the common good. Than... Oh, they're clearly not. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. clearly not. And uh, in, in fact, I think that there is. You get this from uh, the Carpenter quote about how oftentimes people who have you know more power or are of a higher class are often more dangerous. I can also talk about what's uh, what Nardi puts next on this authoritarian to democratic spectrum. Uh, so you have Mordor and Isengard all the way uh, on the authoritarian end of that spectrum. And then he has uh, next uh, Gondor. And the justification there, which we agree with, uh, is Gondor has a relatively centralized command and control structure. Um, it has more levels of hierarchy than Mordor. Uh, like it has lesser nobles and, and lords of cities. Uh, and the Council of Gondor is the only formal political institution mentioned in the entire legendarium, at least according to, to Nardi. I can't think of another. I um, I think there's stuff mentioned in the Akalabeth. I mean, the Entmoot is sort of one. Yeah, the Entmoot, well, the Entmoot totally is one, in my opinion. I would also say there's stuff in the Akalabeth, but regardless. Tolkien is making an effort to show these sort of formal institutions uh, that ostensibly are representative of like the people of Gondor. Of course, it's a it's a it's a monarchy, uh, and you know people. It's not a democracy by any means. People do not vote or anything. Uh, it's an a, it's a sort of 
still a centralized authoritarian command structure, but it's not as centralized in one individual like um, like Mordor and Isengard are. And I think, you know, within that, you, you get uh, Mordor and Isengard both collapse as soon as the, the ruler is deposed. Uh, I guess M- Mordor is a different case because it was literally constructed like using Sauron's essence and his spirit and everything. But with Isengard... Uh, once you have no Saruman, you don't have Isengard. Whereas in Gondor, you actually see in Return of the King, uh, you know, Denethor uh, is overthrown, uh, to put it nicely. He kind of overthrows himself. And Gondor, you know, stays strong. And in fact, you also have a peaceful transfer of power after very Fa- Faramir becomes the, uh, you know, the steward once his, once his father, uh, uh, you know, decides to uh, bite the figurative bullet and um and Faramir willingly turns over his power and his authority to Aragorn who is you know by all accounts the the, the rightful king okay Sam why don't you talk about the the next one here yeah so next up we have Rohan uh, which is similar to Gondor but seems somewhat more horizontal so you know Rohan also does have a, a centralized government but it's even less centralized than Gondor um it's a very sort of early feudal system. Theoden has to call upon his vassals to muster their soldiers to uh, uh, Dunharrow. You know, Tolkien has his background partially as a medievalist. The, you know, he studied the, you know, old English of the West Midlands. He was very familiar with the fact that in medieval society, a especially early medieval society, especially Anglo-Saxon society, which is explicitly what Rohan is based on, a leader could call upon his vassals and they could refuse. You're supposed to say yes, you sign oaths and stuff. But if there's a pressing reason why you have to say no, you know, it, it sometimes would be the case that the vassals would not march when command upon. So you automatically have a, this level of decentralization, which you don't get in Gondor. Um, and even more decentralized than that is Lake Town from The Hobbit, which Kenny will get into right now. Yeah, so so Lake Town is pretty clearly, uh, you get this idea of of mob rule. This is tending toward uh, the the very democratic side of this spectrum. Uh, the master with a with a capital M, who is sort of you know the leader of Lake Town. He follows the whims of his subjects, and it's just to win re-election. Really, there's a, a formal election process. Uh, he pays too much heed to quote, trade and tolls, unquote, which Nardi sees as a stand-in for short-term electoral concerns. Uh, You might think of, you know, certain political figures uh, focusing single-mindedly on the stock market or something, Um, rather than preparation to defend the town from impending disaster, which, you know, you see in, uh, in in the presence of smog. And then, of course, all the way on the Democratic side of the spectrum, finally, is the Shire. And what's interesting is that Although, you know, this is sort of presented as a, as a continuum, the Shire is almost a, a different form of democracy and one that Tolkien clearly actually does approve of, because the democracy of the Shire is not really a formalized democracy. Of course, the mayor is elected, our, our based king, Will Whitfoot, uh, and then later Sam. But- Iconic! But um, the mayor doesn't really have much power at all, and uh, and of course we, as we talked about in our in our previous episode, uh, the Shire also has this you know distributist economic system, which is in a lot of ways compatible with you know certain theories of certain theories of democracy. In the Shire, though, you get 
uh, what Tolkien was talking about, about the uh, the process of formalizing and, and quote, mechanizing democracy uh, or mechanizing the sort of impulses that, that lead to democracy. Uh, that's what's done in Lake Town. There are formal elections and, and the, the, the master has lots of lots of power. And because of, you know, human nature and because uh, p- humans are are fallen, uh, he uh, he misuses that power. Whereas in the Shire, no one individual or even group has outsized power like that. Of course, there are sort of uh, families like the like the Tukes and the um, and the Brandybucks who have certain power from their uh, from their lineages, but it's it's really more so a, a sort of a social structure where individuals still in you know going about their days would treat one another more or less uh with equality or some minimal level of of deference it's not like the the tukes and brandy bucks have the have the authority to levy attacks on on others or something like that but so going into that point a little bit uh there there is one point that that I, I think that Sam and I significantly disagree with with Nardion, and that is uh, Nardi uh, claims at one point that quote there is evidence of significant social mobility in the Shire unquote, and uh, I think that's just kind of wrong. Um, he uses of course of course after the events of the Lord of the Rings, uh, Sam is elected as mayor of the of the Shire for seven terms, forty nine years. Uh, and uh, and he uses that he uses his election as mayor so many times as proof of the social mobility of the Shire because Sam is the archetypal working class hobbit. Uh, but I tend to think that Sam is sort of an exceptional case uh, because of his role in saving the Shire. Uh, you know, of course, both in his you know journey with Frodo to Mount Doom and him being the real sort of hero of that. Although it's unclear, you know, if everyone knows that, I, I would probably guess sam would not really you know brag a ton about it he seems he's pretty humble um but uh really more so in saving the shire during during the scouring of the shire which everyone sort of recognizes that you know stuff is better when uh when sharky and pimple are not in charge and so i think that the shire folk would very likely view him differently than they might view like his father or other members of the working class uh, because they'd probably lump him in with mary pippin and and frodo who are sort of from uh, higher classes, more or less. So, and I think that what that really means at the end of the day is like in the narrow sense, it proves that Shire folk can move up and down the social hierarchy. Um, But I don't think it's reasonable to use Sam as a model to hypothesize about uh, other sort of less exceptional hobbits. Sam is very much like a singular individual who comes from this lower class background, but also exhibits these like, acts of astonishing bravery and he Frodo Mary and Pippin are probably the closest things that you know the Shire the regular Shire folk would view as being local heroes and so I think really what we're getting at is that um there's something here about how Sam being the the true protagonist may reveal Tolkien's uh belief not in the arbitrariness of class uh for example he has Sam repeat over and over again how much he can't wait to get back home and and tend the garden um but in the inherent dignity of members of every class. Uh, class distinctions are, are good, but that's because people having God-given roles in society is good, not because some people are more deserving of, of happiness or, or prosperity or something like that. Uh, 
true happiness comes in, in Tolkien's view when everyone in society knows their role and finds fulfillment in it. And I think you get a lot of that in uh, the distributist ideology, again, that we talked about on our on our previous episode. So I think now, moving forward a little, everything we just talked about all applies to uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Um, as always, we are a, uh, an, a full legendarium podcast. And so, Sam, why don't you talk a little bit about the communities in the Silmarillion? Yes. So an, an, it's harder to map the communities from the Quintus Silmarillion onto this because they're elven primarily. Um, and the sort of basic assumptions of political science to an extent go out the window when everyone you're dealing with is immortal. Um, and the assumption is that everyone will live forever. On the flip side, I think that talking about some of the communities in Middle-earth during the Quintus Silmarillion, or Beleriand more aptly, is a bit more relevant because there's such a frequency of death from military conflict that I think they sort of take some of the forms of human society. And the thing I want to talk about first is um, a lot of it comes from the story of Beren and Luthien, um, which, you know, Tolkien considered his, you know, most important work in the Legendarium. Basically, you have this community, Nargothrond. Nargothrond is an elven kingdom in the north of Beleriand, ruled by King Finrod, who is a uh, son of Finarfin. And uh, actually, interestingly enough, his sister is Galadriel, who I'm sure you're all fairly familiar with. Significant power is held by two sons of Feanor, though, uh, Kelegorm and Kurofin. Um, they are, you know, you could say high courtiers, high bureaucrats of uh, Nargothrond. And like all the sons of Feanor, they're chiefly interested in uh, getting the Silmaril back for themselves, um, which was the oath that they signed. So off the bat, you have a slight disconnect in interest between the ruler and chief bureaucrats. Um you know, Finrod is not primarily interested in uh, acquiring the Silmaril. I mean, I guess it's an auxiliary motivation as a means to defeating Melkor, which, as we all know, they ultimately never had a chance of doing. But um, there's immediate discord. But where the discord gets hammied up is where uh, Baron and Luthien come into the picture. Uh, initially, uh, these two brothers take uh, Luthien to Nuviel hostage. Uh, Luthien Tenuviel, who is, uh, you know, daughter of King Thingol and the daughter of Melion the Maya. Um, she's going to meet uh, Beren, who's a great human leader, um, on their quest to get one of the Silmaril. So they take her hostage, uh, partially as a means of, you know, getting the Silmaril, partially also because of implied uh, creepiness, uh, worth noting as a sort of teaser for a future episode about sexuality in the legendarium and i think two-thirds of the episode will be discussing the baron and luthien story by far the horniest story of the legendarium yeah and it's not close <laughs> even a little bit the key thing to emphasize here is that uh Kelegorm and curafin chase around uh baron and luthien uh sociopathically uh trying to kill them to take the silmaril this is obviously insane you're trying to defeat uh supposed allies against the most evil being in the world because they have shiny gems that you want ultimately what's really interesting is that despite being these incredibly powerful 
elven lords, sons of the most powerful Noldor of all of them, they are deposed by their subjects. The people of Nargothrand literally chase them out of town. So although it's not a democratic society and there's no, you know, voting for whether or not Kelegorm and Curafin can hold power, when they go too far outside of the bounds of, you know, what's acceptable in society, when they go outside of the bounds of codes about what you can and can't do to other elves, you know, bans on kinslaying, although they don't hear kinslay, but they sort of attempt to, um, the people depose them. So although it's not a democratic system, there's still some accountability, and Tolkien is pretty heavily implying that some level of accountability is a good thing. He's not advocating for a totally totalitarian system. Um, but sort of, yeah, that's sort of my, my Nargothrin summary and how that relates to the spectrum, where it's actually seemingly maybe a bit more authoritarian on the authoritarian scale, but I think the capacity for the polity to overthrow high-ranking bureaucrats and for the king to, I believe, be okay with it, implies that it's really not that authoritarian at all. And then another thing, I mean, you know, jumping forward, you know, a few thousand years, um, leaving behind uh, the Quintus Silmarillion and going into the Akalabeth, which follows it both chronologically when it was written and also in the book edition of the Silmarillion. We're in the Second Age now, folks. Yeah, we're the, we're, and we're going to really be talking about the end of the Second Age, which is sort of all the Akalabeth really goes into. So basically... You learn the history of Numenor, which, you know, not to summarize too much, but just really quickly, is this giant island continent raised out of the sea by God and the um, Ainur after the event of the First Age as a reward to the loyal men who helped out um, the side of good in the war against Melkor, which they didn't really need to do. They didn't even need to be in Beleriand to begin with. Um, however, over the course of the development of Numenorean society... Uh, things get increasingly authoritarian. The ritual practices get increasingly abstract. Monuments get bigger and bigger and more gaudy and more gaudy. Um, it, it is a direct reference both to uh, you know Atlantis um, and Plato. It, Tolkien explicitly says this. It's also pr a, a pretty direct um you know, reference in certain ways to uh, classical myths and events of the Bible. Um, there's a lot of sort of old Mesopotamian stuff in there. But the the, the key point I want to get into here is that um, towards the very end of the Numenorean lifespan, it goes ultra-authoritarian. The king at the time, King Ar-Farzan, basically sends a delegation to go get Sauron from Middle-earth um, and, you know, sort of take him prisoner. And what ends up happening is uh, he becomes an appointed counsel to the king because he uh, is beautiful and sexy and hot. Uh, this is, that's canon, by the way. Um, genuinely, for people who don't know, this is actually like the case. And uh, great at talking and persuasion. And he tricks the uh, king and the high council to turning uh, Numenor into a death cult where there is constant human sacrifice and mass surveillance. Um, the king has ultimate power over everyone. Um, they build increasingly large temples for the human sacrifice. Um, and then he convinces them to invade Valinor, 
the land of uh, the Ainur, which is a no-no, big no-no. They're not allowed to go there at all. It's also worth noting, I think some interpretations of this story sort of present it as Sauron was entirely corrupting them. In truth, they had been verging in this direction for a while. They had become increasingly envious of elves, envious of immortality, um, impatient. They were increasingly obsessed with death. A lot of this actually comes from Joshua Hren's book, which we've referenced in previous episodes. I cannot recommend it enough. Um, And this society becomes ultra-authoritarian, ultra-despotic. They end up invading Valinor, and uh, this is such a no-go that Numenor is crushed wrought from the sea and the shape of the world is bent and turned from a flat disc into a circle. I think a key thing to note here though, and the way this connects back into levels of democracy and the idea of descent is that you do have a group of loyal men who stay loyal to Eru Iluvatar and loyal to the Ainur who refuse to join, secretly refuse, I should say, to join the invasion of Valinor, and they all, you know, sort of secretly leave as it's going down. As a reward for their loyalty, the Ainur help establish new kingdoms for them on Middle-earth. These ultimately become Arnor and Gondor, and uh, Aragorn's a descendant of these people. These people are also a descendant of Baron and Luthien. It all connects. Tolkien's really good at that. Um, but what you clearly have here is a society which becomes ultra-authoritarian, um, unvirtuous, and those who dissent against it are rewarded. So Tolkien, uh, once again, clearly does not entirely reject the idea of input from the people. And even though he's not a, Demo- a, a Democrat, and he doesn't believe in the formalization of these relationships, that doesn't mean he believes that a, a ruler should completely ignore the whims of the people or, you know, ignore their common sense, because both in Nargothrond and in Numenor, we see two examples of rulers going insane, uh, individuals and groups dissenting, and those individuals and groups, uh, you know, succeeding and being betrayed in a positive light. Yeah, that, that's that's a perfect segue, I think, to this uh, discussion of the role of dissent. Um, I think that the the, the the most obvious example of, of dissent in this manner is Elendil, who is sort of the leader of the Numenoran rebels who dissent and, uh, and escape to Middle-earth uh, before they, you know, found Arnor and Gondor. Despite the fact that they are, you know, rebelling against what is, by all means, you know, the sort of rightful ruler, uh, they are, you know, doing so in the interest of, of what's good and what, what's right. Um, and I think that later, during the course of Lord of the Rings, you get two cases in particular that are pretty clear examples of, of dissent uh, from, you know, sort of the higher ranks of of these bureaucracies that Tolkien clearly portrays uh, uh, approvingly. Uh, the first that, that I think of is Baragond, who is a member of the, what, what is he, like the Guard of Gondor or something like that? He's in like... Yeah, something like to that extent. And uh, basically, Denethor, uh, as he's sort of completely lost his mind when he thinks that Faramir is dead, and of course he's secretly been corrupted anyway by by the Sauron feeding him, not misinformation, but sort of twisted information from uh, from the Palantir. And um, he, Denethor issues uh, an order to his, you know, his underlings, uh, 
something to the extent of, you know, get me fuel or something because I'm going to light myself and my son, who I think is dead but isn't dead, on fire. And Baragond, in, instead of, you know, fully complying with that, he goes and gets Gandalf. He's disobeying an order. Uh, Denethor is, you know, the, the rightful ruler. Uh, but he is exercising, you know, some common sense and saying, okay, this guy has clearly lost his mind. And, uh, you know, I'm going to sort of take it upon myself to go get someone who I think would be better equipped to, uh, to handle this situation. And not only does Tolkien sort of portray it approvingly, but Baragond, once Faramir becomes um, the steward after, uh, after Denethor dies, uh, Baragond is, is awarded with a, with a promotion. So it's not only is it sort of rightful, but it actually is rewarded within the very system that he dissented from. And the other, I think, example of dissent, this is a smaller one, but I still think it's, it's worth noting, is Eomer. Once Grima has, uh, you know, thoroughly corrupted Theoden in, in Rohan and is, you know, sort of feeding him these, uh, the, the lies of Saruman, uh, Eomer takes the riders of Rohan. They just kind of leave. Eomer's like, I'm, I'm not going to listen to, you know, Theoden's commands anymore, basically, because I, I know that he is, uh, he's not in his right mind and he's, he's corrupted. And so that, that's another act of dissent where I think that the common thread between all of these, all four of those cases, this is dissent against a, a corruption of some kind. The elves are corrupted by, you know, the desire for the, for the Silmaril. The, uh, the king of Numenor is, is corrupted by Sauron and, you know, sort of capitalizing on his, on his fear of death and his desire of immortality and his jealousy. Denethor is corrupted by Sauron, essentially, and Theoden is corrupted by, uh, by, by Saruman and, and by Grima. I think Tolkien certainly uh, recognizes that at the end of the day, these are fallen individuals who are subject to corruption. And again, individuals that are in positions of power are oftentimes uh, uh, more susceptible to these forces of corruption. And that this, that dissent is is useful. Also, you get in none of these cases is this a formalized dissent. No one is, you know, filing a complaint or voting out these rulers or something. They're using their own judgment and they're acting of their own accord within their sort of power. Uh, in all cases, peacefully. Uh, oh, actually, that's not true. Not in the Nargothrond one. That's not particularly peaceful. Yeah, no one, no one, no one dies from anything. Yeah, no one dies. But, but nonetheless. Uh, these are not formalized mechanisms to combat corruption. It's all the virtues of individuals. So, uh, Sam, do you have anything else to add about Tolkien and democracy? We've been kind of going on for for a while here on this on this uh, meandering path. I would, I think, to sort of the final thing I would say is that I think we've probably said this in every episode, but I think there's useful political ideas in Tolkien's work, um, even if you disagree with his worldview and his politics, at least that's been my experience. I think that he brings up some ideas that are really worth grappling with through his work, um, even though I, I disagree with a lot, not all, but you know, most of his political beliefs. So I think that's probably just, you know, some little general idea I'd like to end with. Yeah, uh, totally agreed from, from my end as well. Well, I think that just about does it for this episode of the Antmoot Podcast. As always, we're glad that you took the time to listen. And as always, Sam, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye-bye.
podcast is co-hosted by Sam Lieberman and Kenny Tellerico. Our cover art is by Claire Harple. Our theme music is by Kenny Tellerico. Any materials or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes.